You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti. I'm the producer and host for today's show, which is being recorded on location during the ABA mid-year meeting at the George R. Brown Convention Center in downtown Houston, Texas. Joining me now is R. Our two guests, uh, one is uh, Misty Thomas and the other is Virginia Sloan. They're both from Washington, D.C., and they work for the Death Penalty Due Process Review Project within the ABA. So, ladies, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, one at a time. Uh, tell me a little bit about your position, what your position is, and, and some of your duties. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll start with Misty. Hi, thank you for having us. Um, again, my name is Misty Thomas, and I am the director of the project. I am the staff member charged with working with our wonderful steering committee of legal experts and, in fact, myself trying to build an expertise and sustain support to the project as we do things like promote ABA policy. We have extensive policy in the ABA on death penalty, due process, and fairness, standards for counsel, and other things related to criminal justice best practices. So not only am I helping to promote those, looking and making sure we're tracking the major issues of law that are going around the nation, making sure my steering committee members know what's going on and how we as an ABA entity, and then encourage the ABA writ large to respond to changes in the law and important issues surrounding the death penalty. Okay, in Virginia. Uh, I'm Virginia Sloan, and I am the chair of Misty's steering committee. I'm actually a volunteer, uh, as most uh, people who are members of the ABA are. I'm, I'm the in re- the real world, the uh, president of an organization called the Constitution Project in Washington, D.C., but as a volunteer, I uh, chair Misty's steering committee and work very closely with her on all the objectives of trying to uh, get the uh, 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 policies of the ABA on the death penalty out to uh, the public, to journalists, to the bar. Well, Misty, your staff... Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask Virginia, now you're a volunteer, so obviously right. you have a professional life outside of your volunteer yes. work. Can you tell me where you work and what do you do? Yes, I'm the president of the Constitution Project, oh, which I'm is sorry. It's, it's a small nonprofit uh, dealing with uh, bipartisan uh, consensus building on constitutional law issues. We're based in Washington, D.C., and one of the issues that we work on is the death penalty, so this is a natural interest of mine. Okay, great, great. So let's get started with it. So Death Penalty Due Process Review Project, mm-hmm. let's uh, give us the 50,000-foot view and let's get into some details. Sure. Well, the project is an outgrowth of the ABA's 1997 resolution supporting a position of a suspension of executions to the extent that there is not confidence with certain laws and procedures that there's not sufficient fairness, protections for wrongful conviction, and concerns about disparity. The ABA passed this resolution in 1997, not taking a position on the death penalty per se, but saying if we have these concerns and they exist in that jurisdiction, you shouldn't be carrying out executions. To further that policy goal, the ABA created this project to really help facilitate and implement its policies in states where there were major concerns about the death penalty. And it spent the last decade or so doing very in-depth studies of 12 different states' death penalty systems um, in active death penalty states. And I won't necessarily litany all of them, but they are of the 32 active states, 12 of them, and did really excellent research in conjunction with state-based experts, prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges, academics, to really study that state system so that we could then compare the practices there 
with the ABA's best practices and recommendations and really try to educate the public and policymakers on what we found and where there's room for improvement. Um, from there, those state assessments are now done, and the project's charge is, is a bit bigger. We really can look at all of the policies and standards that the ABA has, the evolution of the law. This is a complicated, fascinating, and emotional and, and legally complicated issue. And so it's fitting that the profession of lawyers looks at this important thing that is the system of capital punishment and, and tries to make it the most humane, fair, and excellent system if we're going to have this thing happen in our justice system. So I look, you know, and the project looks at these state studies and how we can further those recommendations, but we look at other broader issues like serious mental illness and the death penalty. We look at how clemency can be a meaningful practice. We look at what's going on internationally and other countries that retain the death penalty and how we can ensure that they're also being very thoughtful, deliberative, and utilizing rule of law to do that. Great, great. You know, we did a show uh, recently on our Lawyer to Lawyer show, which is one of the one of many on our network, and uh, we had a guest on, uh, Ronald Kiney, who was a uh, survivor of death row nine days from his execution by a gas chamber. And uh, another guest we had on was uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski, who was in the news uh, quite a bit about uh, calling back the firing squad as a, uh, as a means of uh, execution. And so, in part, the show is about the method of execution and, you know, whether or not it's cruel and unusual punishment. And so the reason this came up was because there's been a lot of botched executions via lethal injection. And so uh, amongst the many complaints is that the chemical cocktails have passed their useful life and, and are no longer able to, uh, I guess, deliver what, uh, I guess, what is called, uh, without weighing in on comments one way or the other, a humane way to put someone to death. And so the reason I brought all of that up was that I wanted to get into some of the issues that uh, your particular program or your project has with the death penalty itself. Well, I can say that uh, the ABA had uh, four criteria for, uh, in its 1997 uh, resolution that it said had to be met by the states if they were going to have uh, the death penalty, and Misty's already described what they are. But uh, through these uh, detailed assessments uh, that the project has done, it's become very clear that the states have not complied with any of them, or they've complied with a couple of them, but not all four of them. And so the states are really very badly out of compliance with what the ABA considers to be an absolute imperative if states are going to have the death penalty. And so that's why the project is is still in existence, because we are still doing a lot of public education and advocacy around where the states are failing, how they might be able to uh, make their systems better. Uh, it's really an open question as to whether they can fix them, because every time you turn around, a new problem crops up. This uh, whole question of lethal injection and the kinds of drugs they're using is a problem that was anticipated but really blew up in the past year or so. Uh, and uh, there, there will always be questions about how the, how the death penalty is implemented. And, and uh, the case that you described as someone being nine days uh, from execution before he was, ex- he was exonerated is is unfortunately all too common. Uh, We see all the time um, people who have spent uh, years and years, in in one recent case, 38 years on death row before he was exonerated. And that that man is, all of them, have, have lost most of their lives. And he wasn't the right person. It's, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. And your, your question about what the range of policies we have and the types of topics we cover, I, I 
often glibly will say we, we work on issues from soup to nuts on the death penalty, it's ranging from things of the moments of arrest, what happens with police practices, are they utilizing best practice standards in videotaping of interrogations, the methods of identification processes, the retention of evidence we have policies on. Uh, then it goes to we have standards related to the quality and resources for defense counsel. Are these lawyers who are taking capital cases deep, truly experienced? Are they expert practitioners in this very complex area of law? Standards about how prosecutors utilize their discretion and are also trained related to issues of discovery and making sure that the process is, is transparent and the information that's exculpatory is shared with defendants and defendants' counsel. We deal with issues related to the judicial discretion and the way judges handle capital cases, the preservation of DNA evidence I may have mentioned, um, and how experts are allowed access in capital cases. Then we proceed to have standards related to the quality and remedies of post-conviction remedies that are available. They do vary between the states, and the federal system you know, is layered on top of that, and it's incredibly complicated. Federal habeas law is it's not for the faint of heart. Um, so then there's also what happens meaningfully or not meaningfully in a state's clemency procedures, and we made recommendations and studied those issues. The ABA thus far actually has no policies on lethal injection protocols or these, the drug issues you referenced or transparency, but that's potential to change the, during this mid-year meeting. We have um, sponsored a resolution that would call for um, the ABA to finally take a position and say that there is a value to transparency in execution protocols. It would not dictate what drug protocols are or are not appropriate. That's for different types of experts. But we think that those issues can't be meaningfully resolved in the courts or in public discourse if there's not transparency in our ability to audit these really important governmental actions. So... I would, I would also say that we have another resolution regarding the unanimity of jury verdicts. Uh, in Florida, for example, if uh, on a 12-person jury, seven people agree that the defendant should get the death penalty, uh, that is sufficient, and that is truly shocking. Uh, we are used to having a unanimous 12-person jury reach a verdict, but in Florida, the chances for mistakes because of the... Uh, uh, lack of unanimity uh, goes up exponentially, and there are a couple of other states that don't have unanimity, and uh, so that's another resolution that we're working on. Um, whenever you have any lack of due process in the death penalty system, for all the reasons that Misty has described, because of the two resolutions that we're working on here at the mid-year meeting, um, then you end up with a very high chance of a wrongful conviction, a wrongful sentence of death, and you also have a tragedy for the victims and the victims' family members uh, because they don't have the chance to make sure that we have the right person in custody or uh, uh, in prison. And it's a, terrible, it's a terrible thing for them to have to go through this over and over again. Well, you're, uh, you're talking about Florida and uh, talking about, uh, you know, uh, the unanimous jury. And, and uh, you know, I just, it, it brings up, we, not to bring up another show, but we, uh, we had a, uh, another guy on this year. We've been doing uh, quite a few of these stories, but William Michael Dillon it might recognize the name. And uh, he was incarcerated for about uh, three decades. And, uh, and the other thing that brought this up was that talking about DNA 
evidence retention. And one of the issues, I believe, if I remember correctly, was uh, it took a very long period of time once it got traction with an innocence project to track down the DNA evidence, which is not always easy to find, which is astounding. Um, you know, and eventually they were able to test it and exonerate it. But, you know, like you said, you know, this, this man has lost three decades of his life behind bars. You know, those are years you can't get back. And then, you know, I think when we do finally exonerate people, I don't think they're fairly compensated, you know, for the time they spent for a crime they didn't commit behind bars. Um, it's well, and remember that if the wrong person is in prison, the right person is still out there. And that's we point. have evidence that uh, uh, the right person, the, the true perpetrator, um, um, who is not uh, arrested and convicted, has gone on uh, in several cases, to many cases, to, to commit other crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but keep in mind a very important point that DNA evidence, biological evidence, is only available in uh, not even 10% of criminal cases. So what about all those cases where there is no biological evidence for a defendant to rely on right. to prove his or her uh, innocence? Um, it those cases are infinitely harder um, to to prove innocence, and and um, those people are often stuck. Well, and and then there's the flip side as well, which is we also want to have confidence in the cases where the person is guilty. Right. You know, we want to have a belief that our system not only is able to catch and prevent wrongful convictions but do right by the, the correct convictions and meet, have confidence that we've given meaningful and fair process from the beginning to the end and that every stage comports with the Constitution, that every stage comports with fundamental fairness and gives the public a sense that, that they're, they're being served. And when we have these policies where things are done slapshot, evidence is not kept in an organized way, we're not meaningfully providing quality counsel both on either side of the case where... You know, we we don't really seriously consider intellectual disabilities and mental illness, and we're not sure if we're getting the worst of the worst or we're reserving this punishment appropriately. That fails us as well. So, you know, this project really wants to just look at every piece and the whole and make sure that, that we're taking this possibly, you know, I would argue certainly it's work I care about, and I think a lot of members of the ABA do, that this is the most serious thing our government can do. It's one of the most serious exercises of governmental power. And if we don't really reflect and really put thought, resources, and, and fairness behind each step, then that's a really big problem. This is a very, uh, you guys are handling, trying to tackle a wide, wide variety of very <laughs> complex problems. And so my next question is, you know, how many people do you have helping you? Do you have members? Is it called members with mm-hmm. your project? How many members do you have as part of your project? Well, we have currently one staff member. That and would be you. That would be me with the support of the Section of Individual Rights and Responsibilities. They provide administrative support and house the project. So there's definitely a support system within the ABA. And I have a steering committee of 12 phenomenal experts and advocates who bring a variety of different skills and really help um, both in the strategic thinking, the substantive review, and, and this public education things we do. We also have a in each of the 12 states that we assessed and studied, there are teams of experts. I may have mentioned earlier, you know, the, the ranging of academics, former judges, prosecutors, defenders, who all took complete ownership of those studies. They were the ones who actually made the recommendations. And so they're all still actively engaged and care about the reform of that work. So there's a web in the states of active members. But we are a small and we're not a membership section like many of the other entities of the ABA. But we welcome more people who are engaged, interested, and want to participate. We're all volunteers. That's right. I think that's the magic word of the <laughs> ABA is volunteer. 
So, well, yes. listen, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time for our program today. But, uh, you know, I would like to uh, encourage everybody to uh, who's interested to uh, volunteer uh, for the Death Penalty Due Process Review Project. And in light of that, uh, how can our listeners who are listening right now reach out, make contact with you and sign up? Well, our website is, despite our long name, our website is relatively easy. So you can go to AmericanBar.org slash due process and find our work. Um, you can find our contact information, our steering committee members, our assessments, and other actions that we've recently been taking to work on these issues. Great. Well, I want to thank you, Misty Thomas and Virginia Sloan, for joining us today. Thank this, you. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.